Welcome to the Retiring Real Estate Investor Podcast, where we will discuss how to defer taxes on the sale of your property, earning passive real estate income, and everything you need to know to go from active investor to passive investor. Join us as we interview passive investment sponsors, explore the journey of other retiring real estate investors, and share our due diligence process we perform to select passive investments. Investment advisory services provided by Insight Investment Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This podcast is only intended for clients and interested investors residing in the states in which we are registered to provide investment advisory services or exempt from registration. Please contact us to determine if the firm provides investment advisory services in the state where you reside. All content on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Material presented is believed to be reliable sources, and no representations are made by our firm as to another party's informational accuracy or completeness. Insight Investment Advisors LLC and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice, and nothing herein should be construed as such. Always consult with your tax advisor or attorney regarding your specific circumstances. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Retiring Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Bruckman, and I am beyond excited to be joined by Bernard Reese. He is the, I'm going to read this right from your profile. I think it's awesome. The chief education officer at Reesher. And we are going to talk about whatever you want to talk about, Bernard, because what's so awesome about having Bernard on is the post on LinkedIn. You have to follow him out there. He's going deep and he's asked, he's asked his audience, Hey, do you want me to chill on, on the geekiness here? And as a member of that audience, I said, no, I want more. Bring it on. So, Bernard, thank you so much for, for joining us. Brandon, uh, honored to be here. Um, I like following. I love following your content, um, whether it's directly 1031 related, real estate related, financial related. Uh, but I got to say, I think we need more like minded people. Um, I think the super geeky stuff uh, doesn't get enough you know, it's it's tough to compete with the folks that put out, you know, stuff that's super engaging, but doesn't capture the nuance that investors and taxpayers really need to hear. Uh, what I love is your, you know, your approach uh, is coming into stuff as, as an advisor, uh, not as a seller. There are so many products out there, whether it be an investment product or a tax product. I like folks to look at tax structures as a product, just like they do any other um, product out there. And it's important to be interacting with people that actually due diligence it, um, understand it, and are trying to get you into the optimal structure, you know, taking everything into account. I appreciate that. And it's, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, we've set the firm up the way we have is because I want the autonomy and the freedom to make the best choices for our clients and not be restrained by that. Um, I was just reading a post today about, unfortunately, some of the ideas from the financial broker, the broker side of the space, where some of the options that are available to investors, they actually can't describe or sell to you. It's called selling away um, from their firm and they, they literally can't do it um, and offer you some of those solutions. To me, that's that's crazy. That would be like if you went to the auto mechanic and they're like, well, I can't do uh, I can't fix this problem. Your bumper sticks. We don't do that. Um, nor am I going to bother to talk to you about it. Are you kidding? Like we need the car fixed, man. And, and we need to recommend the best solution to get this thing done. Not uh, what your body shop is doing. So 
No, I appreciate it. I think that's great. And I I don't necessarily blame uh, the sellers for like, they don't have to restructure themselves. It's more about consumers understanding that when you go into a shop, they sell you what they've got. Um, And, you know, if you go into a Mexican restaurant, they're not going to tell you about Thai cuisine, right? The thing, the difference is that you know that and kind of out there on the avenue, they're going to be 10 stores side by side and you get it. And you're like, hey, these guys sell this, those guys sell that. And I have to choose in the financial space. Folks don't necessarily even have that perspective. And they think like, oh, this is my one-stop shop for, and they have every tool at their disposal and they're going to help me with everything and every option that might exist. And folks will realize, hey, those guys have a great product, but there are other products out there or there's another option and you have to decide, hey, which store do you want to go into? Or maybe go into both and check them out, find out. I just wish the broker would put a sign up that says Mexican restaurant instead of whatever sign it feels like the flavor of the day is and people don't know the difference. Um, Just a little bit more transparency in our space would be tremendously welcomed. um, So the consumer understands what it is they're consuming um, because man, it's complicated enough already. As you alluded to in some of your posts, we're talking about this really nuanced items for for investors uh, and for individuals the solutions are nuanced already gosh i want the relationship just to be a bit more transparent please thank you about what what we're getting into would be would be great um i'm trying to think about where to spin you today i'm actually gonna let you tell me what do you want to talk about what's on your mind what's what's the number one thing that that uh that you're thinking about today uh you know i think we can kind of bring it all together uh, kind of put it all together, touch on a couple of different things, because I really think that the key is for folks to understand um, kind of the lay of the land, real estate tax, real estate investing, and understand how kind of things could kind of come together. Mm-hmm. Um, then I'll do just a brief introduction so folks have some context and understand how, hey, kind of where does, how does Brandon, how do Brandon and Bernard, you know, who are these players in the space? How do they interact? Um, what are the roles? Because uh, they really are the state. Uh, so I know Brandon, uh, you know, you folks, your audience knows you, but an investment advisor. Um, and you can tell me my understanding is that a big, heavy focus, obviously, you do more holistic planning, but it's there's a heavy focus on the 1031 exchange space, exchange space, retired real estate investors that want to get past the three T's or are we up to four T's? I don't know. It's toilets, tenants, trash. 20 T's, whatever. <laughs> Put in there that's annoying that starts with T for, for landlords. No, you're straight. You're right on it. So, I mean, I think first off for our firm is helping people achieve financial goals. Like that's where we're trying to take people. Um, so there is an investing side of our house that's very traditional. We approach it in an untraditional way. We'll do a podcast about that at some point. But the other side is really focused on, you know, real estate investors, those folks selling investment property and help get them out of beach or a golf course or somewhere they want to be while at the same time deferring our tax and getting some level of passive income. So we're really looking to provide people a solution there where we're finding a lot of folks don't know that there is a solution there. There's the response. You probably hear it too. When they don't want to do the 1031 exchange, "Ah, I'll just pay the tax that long 
I don't want to do that. I'll just pay the tax. So I think there's a there's a lack of lack of education there. And so we're there to kind of fill that gap um, of helping people understand, hey, you have more options um, with with getting out of some of these properties than maybe you thought you did. So that's our role. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that's a great segue uh, because so I'm kind of a call like talk, talk, call it the real estate um, tax trifecta. Um, so we love 1031 exchange, um, cost segregation, and real estate retirement accounts. So that's 401ks and IRAs. They don't really have, you know, we have clients using them for everything from crypto to private equity, uh, but we've made real estate a big focus. If we could cost seg cryptocurrency, maybe we call ourselves the cryptocurrency tax guys. Uh, but being that real estate is really the only industry that has benefits from so many great um, tax advantages and tax tools that are completely above board. Like there are a world of tax tools, right, that I'm involved in in an advisory space, but I don't actually do. And you can decide if you want to bring them in. But I've advised on all sorts of installment sales, conservation easements, captive insurance. But it's not something that we kind of offer as a product because I feel there's just so much gray and risk there that I'm not ready to say, hey, we do this, right? I'll advise. Um, you know, if you notice some of my designations like ACI, that's associated captive insurance, which a lot of folks use as a tax play. But what's great about real estate specifically is 1031 exchange, cost segregation, the retirement accounts. These are not loopholes. These are not things like, oh, it bothers me. People say loophole, right? This is kind of, we didn't come take together three sections of the tax code and try to, that's between the raindrops. Right. Congress put it in there. It's the year to be used. And so long as we use them responsibly, um, hopefully we get the benefit of these tax, you know, this stuff for years and years to go. But these tax tools always have to come hand in hand with actual real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of where we overlap. Right? We may be doing a 1031 exchange and then there's a DST being provided. Um, so this kind of the nexus of assets and tax wrappers. And to get to that question, people are like, oh, I'll just, why bother with all this complexity? So I think it's really important to give folks the right, you know, great perspective on taxes. Uh, and I would say view taxes as an investment. Um, and that's kind of, you got to calculate your risk adjusted ROI. And so it all starts with, all right, what's the ROI? What's the risk? What's the downside? What's the cost benefit? We're so used to doing that with investments. All right, what can we expect? What's the projected IRR? And of course, you've got to know the risk. You've got to do the due diligence. So what is the ROI on a tax play? Now, folks tend to take, I think, a very narrow, you know, not a broad enough, an expansive enough view. So say with a 1031 exchange or cost segregation, um, you can save yourself $100,000 in taxes. Mm -hmm. That's a nice chunk of change. Um, But it really doesn't start stop there. We've also got to think about, all right, now you have an additional $100,000 to play with. Why don't we plug, plug that into financial calculator and say, hey, what's the compounded, right, growth on that $100,000 over a decade, over two decades, 
over three decades. We're talking millions and millions of dollars. So the true cost of unnecessary taxes is not the savings on the current tax year, tax return. The true ROI um, is, hey, what do you do with that money? Um, and so 1031, I like that because it kind of forces you to reinvest it um, and not blow it in Vegas. Uh, because there are so many other things you can do, which are tempting. And of course, it's all about living and enjoying life and making the most of it. Um, but, you know, making the smartest financial moves, that's really where the upside is. And then you got to figure out, all right, now that we know that, oh, it's not $100,000 in taxes. No, when you skip that 1031, when you skip that cost segregation, the real cost is the real way to look at it is what is the difference in your net worth in 10 years from now, mm -hmm. whether or not you do this. And that difference very quickly gets to millions and millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And of course, if it's a bigger deal and the taxes, you save the million dollars in taxes, right? This is going. So the taxes really matter. And of course, if you're investing in real estate, you got to do diligence to real estate. Um, so if you're getting, you're calculating your ROI on taxes, you've got to do diligence, the tax play. Um, there are lots of stuff that are out there, but calculate your risk adjusting return. And what I love about 1031 is more or less your risk adjusted return is your return, right? There's no risk there. Um, we know it's out there. It's in the tax code since 1921. The rules are complex and you got to know how to navigate those. But this is not something questionable that something has created and is marketed and is selling. It's called Section 1031. It's called the 1031 Exchange because it's Section 1031 of the tax code. Um, whereas some other things that are out there, you know, don't necessarily have their exact place in the code. You know, it's maybe, all right, we're going to look at that section of the code and put it together with this and you're going to get that. Well, maybe has the IRS seen this? Mm -hmm. um, there's something that I call. So, can I do a screen share? Oh yeah, heck yeah, please. All right. Uh, so right now, you got to enable it. I have a question while you do that. How many of the investors that come to you are actually calculating tenure arm wise? Nobody. Nobody. Yes, I <laughs> see this too. So this is this is an important point. I want to stress this with our listeners, and I don't think it's your fault. If you've been running real estate for 20, 30, 40 years, you're running real estate. And what we're asking you to do at some point is flip that role a bit and turn yourself into an asset manager, turn yourself into a pensioner and endowment manager. And that freaks our clients out when I say that to them. I'm like, that's going to be your new role. If you decide to sell this, your, your role is changing and you're going to have to think like this and think in this way. But it's very interesting. You just said that you don't see many ROI 10 year calcs coming your way. Yeah, and it's, I guess, running the operational day-to-day -day real estate, right? I do with a lot of real estate investors. You'd be amazed. Some that are extraordinarily extraordinarily successful in high net worth, mm -hmm. um, they do a lot of back-of-the-napkin calculations, um, and it's a lot of kind of, all right, what does your gut say? Mm -hmm. uh, kind of they develop and hone that over years, um, and they kind of, it's a question, hey, take a step back. Where are we at? We're in this game for 20 years. Or 30 years or 40 years, mm -hmm. 
we've got, you know, depending on the profile, they may have single a portfolio, single family rentals, they may have multifamily. Yeah, it could be anything. All right, take a step back. Um, it really needs a financial plan. We can talk about drop, you know, we can talk about park swap till you drop. Yeah. Right. Which works for some people, which is great. Well, but it depends. Are you getting out of the business? Are your kids in the business? Where is the family headed with this? Mm -hmm. um, so it really depends very much on the financial investor profile to figure out what the next step is. And it's a huge thing. I'll let you I'll let you share your screen there and I'll babble through it. Um, it's a huge thing to think. Oh, just, I think got to enable a screen shot. Got to on I'm not, security. Not smart enough to do that. I know usually do Riverside and, and oh. Zoom. You got to go to security. Got it. Can you do it now? Uh, yes. Figured it out. All right. Awesome. I think and I think it's interesting. I want to make one point on this because I think some of our most successful clients do do the back of the napkin stuff. And I believe that they're successful because they've gained a great expertise and feel for their market that they can do that back of the napkin and do it well and be and be accurate most of the time. In addition, I think they do well because they make decisions quickly and they make choices fast. And that's a big deal. But I do think that starts to change as we get a little bit older and we've got to contemplate some more of these planning items. We got to do a little bit more time on some of that diligence. But what do you got here? Look at this. We got some turkey. Yes. If you're watching um, this, you see, this is why you need to watch because we got, we got, see if you, I don't know if you, this is, I think, great. Um, this is come, I, I, it's not, it's not his creation. Um, I was introduced to it like so many others by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Yes. Um, and so he's all about, so his idea is in risk management. He's kind of opposed to traditional risk management industry, financial risk management industry. Um, and so he kind of says, he uses to illustrate uh, what he calls a, you know, the turkey, what does he call it? But he says, imagine you have a financial analyst. The turkeys have an analyst, turkey analyst. Um, and it's, you know, we're just after, let's say, hey, we're December, right? And each day the turkeys get together, like, and we want to assess how's the future looking for turkeys. And each day they're like, hey, looking good. These humans are feeding us, they're taking care of us. And January, February, March, like, hey, guys, this is amazing. These guys are feeding us really well. Um, and then you start heading towards the end of the year, near and near to Thanksgiving. And they're like, hey, guys, it's nearly a year. These humans are taking care of us. The outlook for turkeys is looking better than ever, <laughs> right? Then comes Thanksgiving, <laughs> right? Big surprise for the turkey. The irony of it is, as they each day are perceiving their risk as decreasing, their risks are, in fact, increasing. As we get nearer and nearer to Thanksgiving, they're like, hey, this is things are looking rosier and rosier, more and more days that these humans are taking good care of us. But in fact, the risk is increasing. In the with regards to tax tools, um, I like tax tools that the IRS knows, not tax tools that the IRS does not know. Uh, because when the IRS does not know it, then what happens is, all right, a couple of people are doing this. Nobody knows about it. Then this guy says, now what happens is folks saying, hey, I use this. You did this. It gets on, all of a sudden, it's on social media. Then people promote it. 
And now you have more and more people using this thing that the IRS has never seen yet. And as more and more people say, hey, we're using this, we're getting more and more confident. Look at all those reviews of social media. You can put anything on a tax return. Mm. Uh, we don't know, is the risk increasing? Um, so that's why I love real estate tax tools, 1031 exchange, cost segregation, because it's in there. The IRS tells us how to do it. It's complicated, um, as opposed to other tax stuff that the calculating the risk-adjusted return is very difficult. When you think about how should a client approach that, is, is it really that it seems very black and white from an audit risk perspective. And we kind of think about, use that terminology a little bit of how much you're lining yourself up for risk. It's this easy. The tax code is huge, right? And the items you're talking about are listed in the tax code. If you have an item that's not listed in the tax code, you're inviting audit risk. Is it that simple for folks to think about? It's difficult to quantify. Mm -hmm. um, the reality is the last couple of years, the IRS has kind of had their hands tied. Uh, what's going to happen now that they've been allocated substantial funding? I recall as a child, uh, the terms IRS, you know, my, my dad was a small business owner, still is a small business owner, right? But like, that was like, who knows, you know, and a lot of you not know, community, you know, IRS was a thing. Mm -hmm. And over the last, let's say 15 years, it's like, it's just not a thing. The question now is, all right, it's a part of the game. And I, I can say this as a, right, I'm a CPA, right? Tax returns are not my thing, but, you know, I kind of some people, you know, all sorts of stuff that govern how CPAs practice. So it's governed by obviously the, you know, CPAs have our own thing. And then there's taxes that, you know, circular 230 is IRS stuff, um, preparing tax returns. So technically any position you take on a tax return is supposed to be based on the merits of the position, mm. not taking into account the audit risk, mm. right? Mm. You're not supposed to put something in a tax return saying, hey, the IRS saw this, they would say no way, but what are the odds of them seeing them, seeing them it, it are slim. Mm. So let's just do it. Uh, practically, investors do think along those lines. And I think that's cool. Meaning I'm not, I'm not the IRS, I'm not the morality police, and I get it that investors think along those lines, uh, but they have to understand we're, you know, what is the real downside? On certain tax positions, worst case scenario, you pay the taxes, pay some interest, and you move on. With other stuff, we're talking penalties um, that can make folks regret that they ever did it. Uh, so and so you got to know kind of where you stand, um, you know, with the tax position that you're taking. It's difficult to quantify. I will say we prefer working with folks that have a good CPA in their corner um, that will help them sort this out. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I am a CPA, you know, it's the role that, you know, I view myself really best position to support a client CPA. Mm -hmm. You've got a CPA tax advisor. I love communicating with them. You know, if you have a financial advisor that's well-versed in taxes, right, we can communicate really well. 
very efficiently and we understand each other and they know your full tax profile to make those decisions. I think it's tough to quantify risk uh, for these kind of stuff that the IRS has not seen or hasn't said anything about yet. Yeah, our preference there is is with you. I prefer, I'm not, obviously I'm not morality police either, but I prefer, I'm not a CPA and I'm not your C and you're not, you are a CPA, but not your CPA client. So get a good one and we're happy to engage and interact with them. My preference would be, and I'm sure yours too, I want to work with people who are following the tax code because there's so much goodies in there. There's so many goodies in there. Why do we need to make up make up more goodies? We haven't talked about, let me jump back. We haven't talked about your start. Like, how did you end up in such a in such a nuanced real estate space? How did you end up here? What's what's the background that got you in this spot? Okay, love that. So my back, I would call myself more than anything a scholar. And I, I love I actually love reading case law, tax code, regulations. I enjoy that stuff. Love it. Love so it. now what gave me, though, kind of this different trajectory um, is I started working actually on this captive insurance space. So in contrast to kind of where somebody is a CPA, you have your accounting degree, and you kind of start go to a firm. You do tax returns and you kind of do that stuff repetitively. And eventually, maybe you kind of already found your niche clientele, client base, the space that you're doing. Maybe if you're entrepreneurial, you go out on your own, start your own firm and kind of le leveraging the experience that you had working with that type of clientele. Um, or if you're in a bigger firm, the goal is to make partner. I initially, so I got this interesting opportunity to work with captive insurance. That's really where it started. Um, and this was like a very, very large, closely held business owner that knew me personally is like, Bernard, I think you're just the right person to help me figure this out. These financial folks are pitching this thing to me, right? This business has hundreds of millions of dollars of annual revenue, privately owned. You can see that they're like, right, people are knocking down this guy's door trying to sell financial products. And he's like, hey, these guys are trying to tell me set up this captive insurance company. Mm. Uh, so I kind of dove into all the relevant sections of tax code, regulations, IRS revenue procedures, case law, then started engaging with all the professionals in the industry. Um, and I remember like I'm talking to these insurance regulators and who are all typically attorneys. And they're all like, oh, which law school did you go to? I'm like, oh, I never went to law school. Uh, but the, so that's really where I got started. And I realized, hey, there's a, I've got something that I enjoy, I have a passion for. And if I take the traditional route, I'm not going to find that gratifying or satisfying or fulfilling. Um, I did, you know, I, I wasn't, I did initially, did, you know, the kind of the call it W2 job that I had was at a management consulting firm. Uh, we're also kind of the things that landed on my plate were all the things that they hadn't done to date. Like, you got to figure out new stuff. Like, oh, these are the kind of things that we did now. But, hey, somebody asked us, can we do this? Okay, Bernard, can you figure it out? Uh, so, and then I was doing that while I was in school. And I then I applied kind of big four. I did initially accept an offer at uh, PwC. Mm -hmm. And... As it got nearer and nearer to the start date, I was like, 
I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> I'm not going to be happy if I do this. And thankfully, I had, you know, family members that were more than that, like, were willing to support that because, like, hey, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? PwC was like the, you know, if you're having an accounting degree, mm-hmm. um, they are ranked as number one year in, year That's kind of like the dream. And they actually pushed me to it. They're like, you know, <laughs> this is not going to be for you. Uh, and that's, and that's really how I kind of took my own path um, and embraced kind of being able to do what I love, which is sorting out the nuances of these tax tools. And I say, I do get into advisory work and all sorts of stuff. Uh, but in terms of like kind of what we put front and center that we offer and execute, it's the exchanges, um, the cost segregation, and the retirement accounts. I'm curious to know, do you ever interact with self-directed retirement accounts? I was going to ask you to take me all the way through that. And and I was going to – awesome background, by the way. I want to make one comment on that. This is like the non-traditional path podcast. We could retitle it that way. I think almost every guest, like – and myself included and my partner, Josh, very non-traditional path to kind of get get where we are. Um, some of it by design, others of it randomness, um, but always under the vein of like interest and curiosity always seems to be the thing that that drives and I can hear it for you too. I would love for you to walk me through um, some of the self-directed retirement accounts. Cause when I look at, does this work for, should the traditional sort of real estate owner be looking at that? They've been managing real estate for 20 years. They're just plugging away. They don't really have a retirement account, right? Their business is their retirement account. How should they look and view that? Can you walk us through that like holistically of how they should really think about maybe some of the self-directed retirement accounts? Yeah, glad to. And it really needs um, a profile. Yes. Um, at one point, I did kind of a webinar where I went through different profiles because they're not for everybody. Um, and there are a lot of different pieces of this puzzle and different folks with different amounts of mileage uh, from it. Uh, but as a way of introduction, just so folks get up to speed if they're not familiar, there's no section of the tax code called self-directed IRAs. It's not like section 408 is IRAs, 408A is Roth IRA, and 408B is self-directed IRA. Uh, In the tax code, uh, an IRA is just an IRA. From the perspective of the IRS, all IRAs are identical. And there's nothing in the tax code that says you can invest your IRA in stocks, you can invest your IRA in real estate. It goes the other way. The tax code says, here are the things you cannot invest in. And if you're not on that list, then it's fear gain for an IRA um, or a 401k or any other type of qualified plan. Uh, so there's really very short list of stuff that can't be invested in. Uh, so basically, Congress created these accounts to incentivize us to save. And they gave us great financial and tax benefits. And again, compounding is a key part of this. So you put money into your tax-deductible IRA, tax-deductible 401k. All right, you might get a $6,000 deduction or a $60,000 deduction, depending on how much money you can put in. That's a nice tax savings this year. The real magic is once it's in that account, it grows tax-deferred. You can invest it. 
your good investments will give you good returns, no tax drag on that. Because if you think of that, the value of not paying um, the annual fee to the IRS, right? Depending on your marginal tax income tax bracket between state and federal, you know, let's just talk, you know, 20 to 50% of your income is getting taken off the top and you're losing that compounding. Very quickly, we're talking millions of dollars of net worth. Uh, so Congress says, hey, Social Security is not going to cut it. We need the American populace to save and invest. And it's also good for infrastructure. It's good for the economy. Money keeps moving around. Money stays invested. Uh, so they give you great tax benefits. And so the only thing they said is don't invest in collectibles, mm. life insurance, and S-Corps. Um, each of those has some nuance to it, um, whether we're talking about a qualified plan or an IRA. But I think for our purposes today, let's just say those are three that are off limits. Collectibles, um, life insurance, and S-Corporations. Hang on. I got to make a note. Removing baseball cards from self <laughs> Okay, cool. No, I'm just kidding. Kidding. IRS. Or just... um, if I have... All right, let's imagine I'm trying to build a kind of a prototypical client. What does that look like who comes to you and says, hey, I need to open one of these accounts? Are they typically full-time real estate investors? Is that who's coming to you to do this? Or, or is it somebody that has maybe some real estate over here as an investment, but also has maybe the W-2 or consulting income coming in as well? Is that more of a fit for folks that have other income outside of real estate that's coming their way? How so the, Paint that picture for me. Yeah. The most popular use of it is going to be being a real estate requires some more substantial investment typically, right? Unless you're going to go to a fundrise or some of these platforms where people have had mixed experiences with, um, right? You needs a more substantial investment. Uh, so you typically have to have accumulated some amount of funds um, inside that's called it the retirement account system. So our typical client is going to be somebody that kind of was a W-2 for some segment of their career. They may still be a W-2. They may do real estate, may be all that they do today, may be a big part of what they do. They may just do it on the side, but they kind of had that phase where they were accumulating funds inside the retirement account system. Uh, frankly, real estate, the folks that have full-time real estate from the get-go have been using cost segregation and 1031 exchange and haven't really had any need to create additional tax deductions through mm -hmm. using accumulating funds in a retirement account. Um, so it's typically going to be people that have money in the system and now they're like, hey, I got introduced to real estate. Uh, there's really nobody, nowhere in the tax code does it say that I can't use my IRA for real estate. Um, ultimately, I think, and it, this, I think there's a real need for financial advisory here uh, and asset location. Um, so we talk to folks about asset location. And we say asset location, we don't mean is it in Tennessee or California. When we say asset location in the financial advisory space is we've got these different wrappers. We've got the 401k wrapper. We've got the IRA wrapper. Um, we see a lot of posts on social media. Should I invest in real estate 
or in 401k. And it's really like, right? Yeah, I do. I do giggle at that because a 401k is not an investment. It's a it's a wrapper. Uh, exactly. Yeah, you and I are laughing at that. And others are like, well, that means stocks. And we're like, doesn't have to. It can be anything inside. The, not anything inside the 401k, but it doesn't have to be stocks, per se. Exactly. It's no. not an asset. It's no. just not an asset class. It's just a wrapper. And that's so really it's like, hey, if you're doing a mix of stuff. Some things are going to be really great inside of a retirement account. And some things are going to be great in your personal name. Mm -hmm. And then it gets to be, all right, what are you going to get? I just had this conversation now with the client. And he's like, hey, I've got this deal. They need X amount of money. I have it in my self-directed 401k. Mm -hmm. I've got it in my personal checking account. Mm -hmm. Which one should I use? Right. And then it gets to be a discussion. Hey. Are you a real estate tax professional? Are you going to benefit from cost segregation, right? Because these are just tools. Again, we we know these are legitimate. They're above board. But how much mileage are you going to get from that? So then we start looking at, okay, what benefit? So we have folks that, hey, they're going to get a huge amount of tax benefit by having real estate in their personal name because we're going to do a cost segregation for them. And they're going to get these huge tax write-offs. And they're going to wipe out all sorts of income, right? And then there are folks that are like, hey, do a cost segregation for them. And it's, they're not going to get any mileage because they're going to get a passive activity loss. And it's going to be suspended. And it did really didn't do anything for them. Mm-hmm. All right. So those kind of guys maybe, hey, use your self-directed retirement account. Mm-hmm. What I see, what, what I wish more is that folks recognize that it's each one has its place. And it's like kind of you walk into that Mexican restaurant, right? They're going to sell everybody on cost segregation, mm-hmm. right? Um, and over the years, you get some additional lip service to like, hey, somewhere in the fine print. It's like, oh, you might not get any benefit from this. But it really folks need to know that, hey, everything really has its its place. Which one does work best for you? Or is it some combination, right? If you're doing hard money lending. Mm-hmm. Use a self-directed retirement account, mm-hmm. right? If you're doing because that's ordinary income, mm-hmm. no depreciation tax shield. Mm-hmm. There's no 1031 on a hard money loan. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's golden in a self-directed retirement account. Um, real estate, it really varies, and that also gets to be financial discussion. Some folks don't want to diversify. They're like, "Hey, I like this deal. I'm getting into this deal," or "I am going all in on real estate." Okay, I don't. I think people are fr- are free to do that, um, and for so many people, that has worked out incredibly well. Um, and I guess like a financial advisor will typically tell you to diversify a bit because that's their role. They can't take certain risks. You got to take on your own, right? It's not like it's not right or wrong, but certain choices you can only make for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. All right, then yes, put your retirement account into real estate. Just go all in because ultimately the biggest determinant of financial outcome is investment returns, mm-hmm. right? More than tax savings, mm-hmm. more important than anything, you need good assets. Wrappers are great. Wrappers are important. Um, and they can really help you squeeze a whole lot more juice out of it. But really starts more is really drives it. 
is great assets, um, great investment returns. And I think, and, you know, on that note, I would actually love to get some insight into kind of due diligence in the in the DST and tick space. Yeah, this is this is really good. Let me jump. I want to jump back, and then we'll we'll, we'll go through because you do a lot of posts on on DST. So I want to spend some time there. Um, two people that know about DSTs and talking about it is always fun. Um, help me think about this. Here's a scenario for you, and we watch this a lot. A lot of our clients are going to lose that golden tax status as real estate professional. They're going to lose that because they're not going to be active managers anymore. They're in essence going to retire. How should they think about? that next deal that they see in terms of how to use their dollars? How should they think about, now they're gonna start, they're gonna get passive income now. So they're probably gonna need passive losses. Is that something they should be thinking about if they have side by side now, if they have those 401k dollars or if they have dollars in their own, should they really be thinking about having that in their own name or having that in the 401k? So does that change that dynamic a little bit? Yeah, that's a, it's an amazing question. It's not the kind, it's kind of comes down to an investor by investor kind of thing. Uh, because if you're on the passive side and like what's, you know, the, what you love to see is as you get out of one asset, you do a cost segregation on the next asset and the kind of stuff nets out. Mm-hmm. Over the last five years, that strategy has worked beyond perfectly. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is, we got TCGA, aka Trump tax reform, mm-hmm. um, that provided 100% bonus depreciation for anything that's 20 years life or less. So now we have your new asset throwing off these incredible amounts of depreciation, tax deductions that can more than offset your gain on sale from the asset you exited. Mm-hmm. Going forward, barring some legislative change, which those proposals are already out there, but you know it's probably not going to pass. That's the truth, um, right? Bonus depreciation on these assets is gradually fading away. So it's eighty percent and down to sixty, and then you know we're going to be back to where we were pre-Trump tax reform. Mm-hmm. So cost segregation, tax deductions. Uh, which in the current environment have been like absolute no-brainers, um, are going to be a little more, you know, they're going to be attractive, but it's is it going to be enough to offset a gain on sale? Mm. It's tough to know because, you know, if you buy an asset, um, you're typically, you may be able, you know, you're going to be getting into a bigger asset, you know, assuming all goes according to plan, you're going to be getting into a bigger asset than the one you exited. Right. So bigger as in, you know, more dollars going in means more depreciation tax deductions. Mm -hmm. So but you kind of have to break out the spreadsheet to know how exactly it's going to shake out. You know, I'd say 2023, it's 8 percent, still a no brainer. Mm -hmm. Next year, 60 percent, I think still a no brainer. Mm -hmm. After that, it's not going to be as clear. Um, The folks look at like we do when we do cost segregation, always do feasibility analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a lot of posts about it because feasibility analyses are can oftentimes be very misleading. Mm-hmm. But there's a, but a, to a certain extent, they're in the current environment. They're like an anachronism mm-hmm. uh, because these feasibility studies kind of made sense before the Trump era, 
where you have to see, does this really make sense? Like what, how much, if I do the cost segregation study, what am I going to get out of it? Mm-hmm. And in the current era, it's like, skip the spreadsheet, just get the study done. Mm-hmm. It, it's been, a, you know, you don't really need all that. Uh, so for folks that are becoming passive, the question is, do you want to, right, do you want to start creating passive losses to match your passive income? Um, yeah, absolutely. That's, that can be very powerful. Yeah, and, we're, and we are thinking about it two, three, four years down the line when we are losing, and this is by law, we do need new legislation, like by law, correct me if I'm wrong, but these, these uh, bonus depreciation items are set to roll off without new legislation. We have to have it. So it's not a choice that, that Congress needs to make about if it's going off or not. It's coming off. They have to make a choice to, to extend it. We just don't know if we're going to see that. Uh, but it's, I think it's just a, an interesting scenario as we watch our clients continue to 1031 exchange again and again. The basis is going down, 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 down. So even getting more depreciation doesn't really help them because they're running on that depreciation schedule. Some of our clients have zero basis assets at this point. And so they're like, uh-oh, <laughs> I have a tax return now that I have to contemplate from the income coming off of my, my DSTs if that's the route they chose. What do I do about that? And our answer currently has been, well, guess what? We need to go buy more stuff. So we need sure. to invest. We need to reinvest some of that money from a tax perspective. But you brought up a great point too. Like, we're also not letting like the tax, the tax tail wag the investment dog. So if that's not a fit for them to continue to make those investments, like we're going to back off from that. But we're starting to find another solution that makes sense for them in those in those declining basis assets to really work on their tax situation. Uh, I don't know what else to do. Like, yeah, you it is tough somewhere. It is worth mentioning um, that typically a 1031 exchange um, will assist with depreciation recapture. You can avoid that. Mm-hmm. There are other stuff out there, say installment sales, um, where depreciation recapture gets picked up mm-hmm. even if you get into an installment sale. Uh, so there is there is nuance out there, and that kind of highlights, again, why every person's tax profile um, is going to kind of dictate to a certain extent, you know, what they're going to do in terms of tax strategy, mm-hmm. uh, because if you got depreciation recapture, and I think it touched an important point, again, viewing this as financial ROI, mm-hmm. um, I've actually had a syndicator who'd say, I don't do cost segregation anymore because, and it says because the investors were really disappointed because they sold the asset, they had all this gain. Ah. Now, but, you know, if folks really go going in with eyes wide open, you understand that, all right, you got, you saved, say, $100,000 in taxes in year one, mm-hmm. right? Depreciation recapture means that when you sell the asset, uh, and I guess I'll, maybe I'll give a brief introduction. When you sell an asset, the way you count, and this is really important for 1031 exchange as well. Right, folks are like, oh, how much am I? What my tax bill? Not going to be that bad. I bought the asset for a million dollars. I'm selling it for. Uh, I got to use round numbers. I'm selling, uh, selling it for one point five, five hundred thousand dollar gain. I'll eat the taxes on that. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way because the way the IRS looks at it is, you took depreciation each year, and now you have an adjusted basis, and for tax purposes. Your gain, your adjusted basis is 500000 say, 
Um, so your gain is actually a million. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you have the cash in pocket to pay taxes? Then you refi a couple of times. And now you don't have the money for the taxes. That's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the real, now with the 1031 exchange, you, you can, you'll typically be avoiding recapture. And so you don't have to deal with any of that. Uh, but importantly is that when you, there, there's a reason why IRS does this. It's called time value of money. And it's the IRS knows that, hey, when you got a tax deduction in 2023, that $100,000, that's worth money because you can go invest that money and earn 10% per year on your money. And then, okay, if you have a gain down the line, right, you're going to repay that to us. And maybe we're going to add, depending on the type of recapture you have, um, they're going to be slightly higher tax rate to compensate Uncle Sam essentially for giving you that loan. Uh, so the it's important to understand that when you take a tax deduction, the real value is taking those proceeds and growing them, investing that, um, and turning that into you know even greater wealth. That's awesome. That's awesome. I know you mentioned it earlier and we've alluded to it a couple of times, but can you demystify installment sales for me and for the audience a little bit? And I'll throw you, a, I'll throw you two curveballs here. So there's the other one. I've seen and been asked recently how this works with a 1031 exchange or can it work with a 1031 exchange? So there are a couple of different angles to this. Uh, one is that every single 1031 exchange can actually become an installment sale mm. naturally. Uh, so one of the perks, so an installment sale, uh, an installment sale tax code, this is 453, the tax code, is any um, any sale in which you're going to get a payment in a subsequent tax year is an installment sale. Gets installment sale tax treatment unless you affirmatively elect out. And in an installment sale tax treatment, you essentially recognize income as you get paid, which kind of makes sense. Um, maybe for financial accounting purposes, um, you know, if you're in gap accounting and accrual accounting, um, you know, you might want to book the gain up front. Uh, but for tax purposes, hey, you don't actually have the money in your pocket to pay the taxes. Now, there are, so the IRS says, okay, pay the taxes as you actually get paid. That's when you recognize the income. Now, sometimes you're not eligible for installment sales treatment. You have to pay the taxes, even if you didn't get the money. Hmm. Um, and then if the amount of outstanding installment sales you have exceeds $5 million, then the IRS essentially says, we want interest. I right, don't pay the taxes, but we want interest. We're essentially giving you a loan because we reckon you owe us this money. You made this money. We're not making you pay. So we want some money each year based on the outstanding balance of your installment sales. So in a 1031 exchange, um, if you sell something in the second half of the year, right? So the, the fundamentals, the logic of a 1031 exchange is that say you assigned your rights in the contract to reshort 1031 exchange services. Mm -hmm. We get the sales proceeds. We hold them. So you actually did not have any gain. Now, when will you have gain? Mm -hmm. If the exchange is successful, right? You don't have that gain. 
right? You don't recognize that unless you subsequently sell the property without doing a 1031. You can 1031 forever and never recognize that gain, right? Swap till you drop, you get the basis drop, step up, amazing. But what happens if the exchange fails? Which happens, mm -hmm. um, right? We spoke about maybe have a DST always as a backup plan. We spoke about that a bit. Uh, but when the exchange fails, it's technically when you'd recognize the income. Well, if it fails in the same tax year as initiated, no impact. But suppose you initiate an exchange later in the year and the exchange fails in, right? Somebody initiated an exchange August 1st, right? It might fail in 2024. Mm -hmm. When do they recognize income? In 2024. Mm -hmm. Because they're, so the IRS says so long as you had bona fide intent to do an exchange, right? That language is there because the IRS doesn't want people Right. This is what I put a post out of on LinkedIn. So every sale that happens after, you know, the second half of the year, mm -hmm. rely on should every single sale of real estate be structured as having one exchange. Because, hey, even if it fails, you only recognize the income in 2024. You just got yourself a year of tax deferral. There you go. So that is an installment sale. So the code does say you have to have bona fide intent to do an exchange. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you measure that? The IRS is not mind readers. So you don't want an email to your, you know, we don't, we don't want anybody sending us an email. Hey, Bernard, I saw your post on LinkedIn uh, about <laughs> installment sales. I don't really want to do an attempted one exchange. I hate 31 exchanges. I want to take this money and go to Vegas. Let's just do this exchange and give me the money on January 1st, 2024, so I can get enrolled the next year. <laughs> That's not good. Um, but so long as you had a bona fide intent to do an exchange, you will have installment sales treatment and only recognize um, the gain in the subsequent year. However, accelerated depreciation is not eligible for installment sales treatment. So that gets, if you did, so you see how it kind of comes together. If you did a cost segregation study and then you want to do installment sale, to the extent that you took bonus depreciation, it's not going to work. Do you think enough investors are thinking about this when they're contemplating, and, and we see this, enough investors saying they're saying, okay, I've got two offers on my property. I want to sell it. One offer, I can sell it, do a 1031, I'll get into something else. Cool. The other one, the offer might be a little bit higher, uh, but that buyer wants me to carry a note. Ah, well, what's the return on the note? Oh, it's pretty good. I'm going to get paid some interest from this guy. Yeah, let's do that one. They're not really thinking about depreciation recapture, are they? or the other tax consequence that might be associated with carrying that note. How should they think about that? I think the starting point is, are you comfortable with the note? I think that's the starting point. Are you comfortable um, with that, holding that note? Mm -hmm. You know, as well as you can secure stuff and yes, you can get, you know, are you comfortable with the note? That's because again, the key thing is the financial start first. And I think, for most people, I think protecting your downside is more important than a little more juice on the upside. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't let the tax decisions drive this. Um, but if somebody's going to let in, you know, if the taxes are a real part of that, yeah, they got to sort out all those different pieces um, because you'd be amazed. And I'd say this, it's also important for taxes, tax deductions. Mm -hmm. uh, comes back to kind of bring our conversation full circle. We're probably going to, I guess, wrap, come to the wrapping up. 
Um, when you get a tax deduction, right, you can actually say somebody says, all right, I don't want to use a 401k. Um, I can't invest in real estate, stock market. I don't like stocks. Um, well, okay, you can invest in real estate. Okay, but it's locked up, um, which I, I don't like that because the folk locked up, once folks have a certain net worth, mm -hmm. right, you're not paying for breakfast with the money, <laughs> right? So it's like, the, the, it's, it's amazing how I see the guys that are posting out there, how they got super rich with real estate and they don't like retirement accounts because the money's locked up. <laughs> Once you have really have net worth, you're locking your money up as many ways as you can. You're locking it up in investments. You're locking it up in tax structures because that's the name of the game. You're not, you don't need that money, right? I mean, you want to use it eventually, but you don't need it today. And the long-term growth will benefit by locking it up. Uh, but it's the tax deductions. You can get a tax deduction. Now, all of a sudden, well, a lot of tax benefits that get phased out, right? So as your income goes up, you get phased out of all sorts of tax credits, tax deductions, QBI deductions. This is valuable stuff. So if you realize that if you take, take tax deductions strategically, now all of a sudden, it's not just that you didn't pay taxes on this thing. All of a sudden, you became eligible for all these other tax goodies um, that are available if you're in a lower, if your AGI is lower. So there is kind of bringing down your tax, taxable, tax, taxable income mm -hmm. can give you all sorts of other ancillary tax benefits. Mm -hmm. And the flip side of that is, like you say, sometimes people can recognize some additional income and miss something and realize that it costs them a lot of taxes. Um, I just saw somebody commenting on this, like, oh, people are selling selling an asset um, to generate income, but selling that asset actually put them in a different, you know, cost them a tax credit. So it washed out. So there have all these moving parts and a, and a seller, right? Finance sale, seller carry back note. Yeah. Uh, if you're, if you overlook depreciation recapture, that can wipe out um, any, you know, upside that they thought was there. We're establishing good principles here. And, and I think we've established this one across the top here is this ROI or IRR, however you want to calculate it, but some sort of 10, here's a dollar. I have a dollar. What's my 10 year return on that? And bringing in these multiple factors, because I think, I think again, a theme here is that I think we have some investors that linger on one factor, maybe overweight it like liquidity. They might overweight those factors in lieu of other, uh, other parameters to think about and other ways to make that decision. We're overweighting one or two, right? So we need a little bit of a framework. And I wanted to, I know we've gone long. But I wanted to address your question because I um, I sidestepped it a little bit. You want to talk a little bit about, let's do like five minutes on DSTs, ticks, due diligence. Where, where do you want me to go on that? You're asking me a question. I'll feel yeah, it. Yeah, I, I just want, I really want to know financial products and it has come in the current environment. It has become a thing. You and I know that this should have been a thing for the last decade, um, which is due diligence. Uh, but... You know, the last decade, the rising tide raises all ships. When the tide goes out, you might find out, you know, who's been swimming naked, to quote two pithy remarks from uh, Warren Buffett. Um, and so the folks that were talking about due diligence up until recently uh, kind of got swept under the rug. 
right? But you know, for ten for ten years, it was all about you know financial freedom, get rich with real estate. Mm-hmm. Now it's all a lot on social media is due diligence. Um, so because not investments are don't just produce money. There's no printing press in the investment. So you got to understand. There are no even in a due diligence doesn't guarantee anything, but it means you ha- you're making a well informed, reasonable decision. Mm-hmm. And it means you've really kind of taken it apart and understood where you're putting your money. Uh, I would love to know how that works in the DST and tech space. Unfortunately, too many investors, and we're seeing, we are seeing a shift in tide, but too many investors historically have looked at a menu and they'll get a menu typically for most people of DST options, take options. And they'll pick the one with the highest year one cash flow. That's it. That's the decision criteria. Oh, pretty picture. Good year one cash flow. Give me that one. Bad idea. So we're we've from the start of this business, we've sort of tried to put a kibosh on that sort of thought process, right? And so we're starting from a really different angle. I would say right now in the DST space, there's probably about 30, maybe 30 active deals looking to raise capital. We've approved about six of them. Right? So starting there big difference in sort of the way that we sort of approach this. And to us, it's in two ways. One, sponsor first. I want to understand the sponsor. And the easiest way for us to do that is deep inside their offering documents is their track record and history. And so they're showing that to you. They're telling you, hey, here's how we've done. And it's not all pretty. Some of it's, some of it's not good. And we want to understand what's not good, right? And so we're spending the time to understand that organization, background checks on those key principles, organizational structure, if one exists, the experience, and then track record is, I mean, track record is a scorecard. And so we want to really, really understand that and how you got there and when you got there, right? Um, if you haven't made money in real estate in the last six to seven, eight years, what's wrong with you? Frankly, I mean, that tide's been high and, and you should be making money. I want to see the track record during tough times, right? I want to see how you deal with things that don't go well, right? How, how are you going to maneuver that for investors? So we're looking at that first. And then equally important is the deal. We do have sponsors we've approved. We don't approve all their deals. Some of the deals we're just not, we're not very fond of and, and the penciling and numbers don't work for us. So then we're taking a run through that deal. And the good thing about the DST and tick space is it isn't a fund. We will do fund investments and in that due diligence too, which is tougher because I don't know what the assets are. Here, I know what the asset is. I know where it's located. I got an address. Um, so we can do the market work. We can understand the track record and history of that asset. What the performa is versus prior T12 or prior performance. Sometimes there's a gap there. And we kind of want to understand why, what kind of assumptions. We're underwriting the underwriting, right? And trying to peel that apart and understand those assumptions. Are they reasonable? Can you achieve these things? Is this a good market? And we're trying to answer that question too. Is there a prospect for growth over the next 10 years? Because we really are making a 10-year outlook on most of these investments. So that's what we'll do. So it's it really is sponsor first. Deals are just as important. Um, we're trying to do the underwriting and pencil this in a conservative way that helps support um, investors making money and making reasonable returns here. The extra kind of tool we have in the back pocket is most DSTs have another third party that's doing due diligence as well. And that's a great checkbook. So there's about three or four firms that We'll do that work. Now they're paid by the sponsors, so I want eyes wide open there on where the compensation is coming from. But it's a great checkpoint for us to say, all right, would are we more conservative than they are? Are we less conservative than they are? We may have a problem there. So 
Um, I'm over answering your question. Stop me. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, I mean, we're, not, we're going deep. Uh, we're going deep. <laughs> no, I, I, do, do they give you, what level of access will they give you? And this is this is a great thing, and I and I want I want syndicators to listen to this from the DST sponsor perspective. They have an advantage on due diligence because they've already bought the property. They're waiting for you as an investor to come and take out their interest in that investment. That means that I have all the third parties. That means I have the appraisal. That means I have rent rule. I have this huge due diligence package that I get on. We get on every DST that we can climb our way through. I just don't get that from a syndication perspective for the obvious reasons. They probably haven't bought the property yet. They need to raise money while they're looking to buy that property. So I'm missing, and I challenge the syndicators to be able to provide timely third-party reports um, and have those accessible and available would be tremendously helpful in helping us make decisions there. So very often we have to lean on, so I have a lot of appraisals from a lot of different markets. I can lean back on some of that other due diligence that I have to analyze a deal I may not have that full package for, which to us is very helpful and helpful for our investors but obviously most investors don't have that going into those deals. That's so pretty tough place to be to not have that. It's a different world when you're going through a, a syndication, GPLP syndication, and I don't have that full package. Ah, this is two times more time consuming. And then I don't know if I have the best information to make a decision. So I really encourage syndicators, the more they can provide that, um, it'd be tremendously helpful for the due diligence aspect. Yeah, I suspect that we're going to get a little more transparency going forward. Uh, there's a push for that. I don't think regulation is not really that helpful. Um, there's some there's people posted about regulating. I think if you look at the public securities marketplace, regulation has just created a, I'm not sure to what extent it's helped. It's created a very fractured environment. It has made the cost of doing business go up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, if, but if there was some sort of private initiative or just people, folks got more transparent, um, I think that would be amazing. Um, I, I would I would make two, let's all think aloud a little bit. Um, I think a private, I haven't really thought about a private solution, but I think that could be interesting. A self-regulating sort of syndicator type group or space, I think could be helpful. Um, I would welcome some level of financial re- regulation in that around not necessarily making sure that this deal is safe or good because no regulation does that. But on the marketing side, I would love some regulation on, frankly, on the marketing side that says you cannot put guaranteed 20% IRR and stuff or whatever numbers that you're out there spewing as sort of with this guarantee sort of thought process around them. A lot of that I would love to see limited or curtailed. Um, It's just not truthful. And it's back to our conversation about the broker in the Mexican restaurant, right? I just want the real sign up, right? That says what this is. Where am I going? What is this thing? Don't make guarantees and promises in some of these in some of these pieces. And some of that might be regulated already. It's a very murky area, and I'm not a securities attorney, but some of it looks suspect to me. And I am concerned the SEC starts poking around here over the last decade. They may find some things that already have violated security law. So the regulation might be there. It's just the application might actually be a little bit helpful for, for investors. But I like this self-regulating. Is this something we got to start? Now we're going to start this right now and start the self-regulated syndicated space. I'm sure, I don't know how popular that'll be, but I think it'll be very popular for investors. Um, I, I think I think people will develop more of an appreciation for it. It will add every layer of this, though, add some cost. Yep. Um, but if it's centralized, 
and it kind of gets spread across an industry that nobody feels. Exactly. And, and some of it, and you probably can relate to this too, from, um, from the 1031 QI qualified intermediary space, I think your space has been begging for regulation for a long time and to have people registered to do this kind of work. And it's not, and it's something that's sort of been overlooked, but kudos to your space for saying, Hey, we want people that are, that are registered in this space. Um, too many horror stories on bigger pockets that are, that are frightening. Um, I, I'm blown away by those stories. Unbelievable. Uh, frankly, the, the good people in every space um, know and respect each other. There's it's called a friendly competition, right? We're in the same space, but I, I answer it particularly, right? I answer questions. Other folks that do self-directed retirement accounts, right? When it comes to, I'll answer their questions directly mm -hmm. um, or they'll refer clients to me when it reaches an advisory level. Um, right. And they know that I respect their relationships. Right. Mm -hmm. So that even though we set things up, right, we're not going to like, hey, we're, I'll just do the advisory work. Um, same with 1031. Right. I've been on exchanges where hey, somebody else ran the exchange and they brought me in to be an advisor. Uh, so it's the good folks in every space know and respect each other and, and work together well and, and embrace um, some sort of industry oversight. 100%. Same in our space too. We like, we, we believe in abundance. Um, and we like, we like the good competitors in our space that have their clients interest, best interest in mind all the time. They're good. They're good people, frankly. Um, and, and we like talking to them. Um, it's very good. This is awesome. We can keep talking all day. Um, uh, but <laughs> I won't let us, um, we'll do, we'll find, we got to find round two here for sure. Um, I want to thank you again, Bernard, for coming on. This has been, this has been awesome. There's going to be a lot of good content coming out of this for people to, to le learn and know it's gonna be excellent. Um, where's the best place for our listeners to find you if they want to get in contact with you? Uh, best place, um, reshorefinancial.com. That's R E S U R E financial.com. Uh, currently what they'd see there, there's 1031 exchange, cost segregation, self-directed IRAs. We've tried to make things kind of streamlined, seamless, technology-friendly as possible. So there are buttons for folks to schedule calls, to submit messages. Um, and we've got a education space. Um, as I say, I like call, call myself the chief education officer. We've got members.reshorefinancial.com. Stuff in there about all sorts of tax and financial stuff. Obviously, heavy cost segregation, self-directed retirement accounts, 1031, but asset protection, estate planning, almost you name it, it's in there, it's searchable, pretty well-categorized. Um, if you want to nerd out, uh, that's a great place to check out. And you know and you know, we do, and I know our listeners do. But no, this has been awesome. Thank you again so much for joining us. Brandon, thank you so much for hosting. Um, this has been a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And looking forward to doing doing it again sometime. Definitely. We will. We definitely will. It'll be awesome. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time, take care.